Well, good morning, and welcome to church today. We're glad you're with us. Would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You can use the Bibles in the seat backs. If you have a mobile device, feel free to use that. Uh, we're going to continue in our series on living differently. And before we jump into the part of the passage that we're in right now that we're going to be moving forward with, I want to ask, because this kind of relays what these first century Christians are getting this letter that's written by this guy named Peter, what they may be feeling. Have you ever played a game or been a part of a team or a sport where you went in understanding a set of rules or maybe you just thought that's how things always are? And then there's a game change. There's a rule change that wasn't really clear to you or like, what's that all about? Have you ever been a part of uh, maybe playing a card game where you grew up playing it one way and then all of a sudden you're playing it with someone who grew up playing it a different way and you're trying to mesh or put together the differences. I think a great example of that hit home for many of us Packer fans with this new sack rule. Nobody had a clue what it was. And it wasn't just in Green Bay. If you watch NFL anywhere in the, in the country, every team got, got hit by it at some point. But it used to be if you wrapped up in a nice form tackle and you brought the quarterback down, that's a sack. We didn't realize that first you had to rock them burp them, wrap them in a blanket, and then lay them on the ground, and then tiptoe away so you don't wake them up. Someone forgot to tell the NFL players about the rule change. In the first century, when Peter's writing this letter to these people who are scattered all over the Roman Empire, he's writing them with, a, they ha, with the understanding of the culture that they have had. This is what the Roman Empire is like. This is how things have happened. This is just how we do things. Peter's writing with a different game plan. Uh, Bill kicked it off last week looking at the beginning of chapter 2. Did a great job spelling that out. If you missed the message, you can go on our, on our um, YouTube page or go on our webpage and catch up from last week's message because it builds right into this week and into next week's message as well. But this week we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse uh, we're going to overlap a little bit. We're going to start at verse 11, but what we'll be talking about today is verse 13 through the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for, for, uh, for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Now there are two primary uh, overarching themes in this passage. I'm going to give you both of them right up front. All of your blanks are going to be filled out in the next 30 seconds. And then we're going to build on, we're going to talk through the talking points of the passage. The first of these big picture, the lenses that we see this passage through is this. Submission and freedom are not contradictory. Submission and freedom are not contradictory. The second lens that we'll look through, the second big theme is this. Suffering for doing good is living like Jesus. Suffering for doing good is living like Jesus. So the first one, submission and freedom are not contradictory which is really verses 13 through 20. And then the second part, suffering for doing good is living like Jesus. That'll be verse 21 through 25. Peter starts this picture. He starts this discussion of of our text today by looking at the political arena. Nothing was further in New Testament thought, nothing was further from the minds of Jesus' followers than this idea of maybe someday either overthrowing the government or having total anarchy. Never will you read in Scripture that that's what God was calling his people to. Never will you read where Peter or Paul are writing for this to take place. Jesus said in Matthew 22, in verse 21, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. Romans 13 and verse 17. Paul was certain that those who govern the nation were sent by God and ultimately responsible to him. They're responsible for, to him for how they lead. 1 Timothy 2.2 of the pastoral epistles instructs us to pray for every person in authority. Don't tweet about them. Don't text about them. Don't Facebook about them. Pray for them. That's a godly way to handle. That's a rule change compared to how most people would think. Why in the world would we do this? Why would this instruction come for us to live this way in regard to government? Verse 13 gives us the reason. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who are right. Why? Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Don't kill your testimony by getting so ramped up over politics. We vote. We don't compromise on truth. We live in a way that recognizes the ultimate authority, and that is in God and his son Christ. But we also are to live with uh, respect toward the government that's in place. Now, as Peter is writing this, they are under an authoritarian government. You had two responsibilities. One, pay taxes. Two, obey. And if you don't do either, you die. We've got a little bit different system today. We live in a democracy, 
But even with the democracy, we have responsibility. There's a commentator, his name is C.E. Cranfield, and he wrote in the 1800s, he said, we live in a democracy, and in a democracy, something far more than unquestioning subjection becomes necessary. Government is not only government of the people, it is also for the people and by the people. The demand of the New Testament is that the Christian should fulfill the responsibility to the state and country. We have a responsibility. We have the right to vote. We have the right to stand up for what God's word says. But, and I want to make this really clear, vote, be involved. But remember this, the focus of our life is not our politics, it's our Savior. The next time you share a post, the next time you feel like ranting on this president or the last president or anyone else, what is the testimony you're setting forward? What is the statement you are trying or that you are making? Peter goes on to say, verse 16, he says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Peter recognizes a great truth in this passage, and that's that we have Christian freedom. We have been set free because of what Jesus did for us. We can leave the mess behind. We can leave our rebellion against God behind, and we can live in freedom. The prison door has been unlocked and opened. Step out. Peter's challenge here and in other places throughout the New Testament is don't use your freedom and take advantage of it. Don't live in such a way that you walk all over the grace that God has shown you. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul tells the church in Galatians that they've been called to liberty, but they must not use that liberty as an occasion to just go and do whatever they want. 2 Peter 2, 19, we read of those who promise others liberty. You can go far beyond what God said. But they themselves, it says in 2 Peter 2.19, are slaves to corruption. They put themselves right back in the bondage of the mess that this world can throw at us. Our actions, our attitudes. Where's the place of our heart? Don't get put back in bondage. Paul, uh, Peter is saying, you've got Christian liberty, enjoy it. But don't take advantage of it. There's a quote that's going to be up on the screens that I'd like to read. It is uh, a quote by St. Augustine. It says, Christian freedom, let's go back to the, the first slide in there, that's the third one. Go back to, there we go. Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. Christian responsibility is always conditioned by Christian love. Christian love is the reflection of God's love. And therefore, Christian liberty can rightly be summed up in the words of St. Augustine, love God and do what you like. And some of you, you hear that and you get fearful. No, I want my prison cell. I want the little guards around my heart and my life. Listen, if your goal is to love God and please Him, it'll be the bumpers on the bowling alley of your life. It's what will keep you out of the ditches and keep you out of trouble and keep you from heading back into rebellion and saying, I'm going to do it my way. Paul is saying, Peter is saying here, you've got freedom. Enjoy it. 
but don't take advantage of it. Live in such a free way that your freedom brings you closer to God and not just going after the things that you want. Christian freedom does not mean being free to do what you whimsically want to do. It means you're free to do what you should do. Free to have the heart and the attitude that you should have. And when we live in this freedom, we don't just do this for ourselves. Our freedom affects those around us. Our freedom is a testimony to those in the family of Christ. To those in the community that God has placed us in. Peter's next step is to give us some how-tos. How do we live this out? Verse 17, he says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's look at those four things really quick. First of all, respect everyone. Nobody is left out of this. There's not a human being on the planet you should not respect. The big term for it is amajo dei. Everyone is created in the image of God. If they understand the image, if they understand how they were created, or they don't and they're confused and they're trying to figure it out, we show them respect. That cannot and does not change. Think of the broad spectrum of people that Jesus reached out to. Who is it that the church would say, I don't want to reach out to them? When this is being written in Rome, there were 60 million slaves in Rome at this time. 60 million. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. Uh, but it, it, it's not the slavery that we've understood, it, it, like what we saw in the 1800s in our own country. It's not that type of slavery. But it was still to the point that if you were a slave, if you were brought in as a captive of war, you were a slave because you were indebted and you were made a slave because you couldn't pay back your debt, you lost your human status. And you were considered a thing. You weren't a human being. You were a property. You were a goal to get something accomplished. And it's very easy today to do the same thing to people. We don't see them as human. We see them as a thing or a a goal or a process to get something accomplished. When's the last time you called someone through customer service? When they ticked you off or they put you back on hold, did they kind of lose their human status? And become a thing. Get it done! You get mad at them. They're still human. They still deserve respect. Who's the person that upsets you the most? They're still human. They still deserve your respect. Who's the person who wants to sit at your table at lunch? But they are not in your group. They're still human. Peter says they still deserve our respect. The second thing he says is love the family of believers. Within the Christian community, Peter, Paul, throughout the first century church, we see it said over and over again, the Christian community becomes family, not just acquaintances, not just the person you happen to sit beside each week, or you may see them across the room. We become family, and the outpouring of family is an outpouring of love. Love must be the dominant atmosphere of the church. Always, no matter who walks in the door Psalm 133 and verse 1, it says how good it is, good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Thirdly, fear God. Proverbs 1, 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of knowledge. And this beginning of knowledge, another way this can be translated, it's the foundation, it's the principal part. The base, the core of knowledge comes with an understanding, a fear, a respect, an awe of who God is. That is the baseline beginning of knowledge. As Bill talked about last week, that's the cornerstone. That our lives can be built on. That's the cornerstone of what our understanding should be built on. Is step one, point one, foundation piece. Who is God? And do we love, respect, and honor him? The fourth thing that Peter says is honor the emperor. And some of you are thinking, well, you don't know who our governor is or our president is. You don't know about the last president. You don't know about all the theories and, and all the scandals that may have gone on or are going on. Listen. Peter is writing this, and the emperor he is talking about is this guy named Nero. I don't know what you know about Nero, but we haven't had a president to touch the depths of degradation that Nero lived out. It's Nero who burned down his own city and blamed the Christians for it. It's Nero who began pulling Christians into the Roman Colosseum where the lions would tear them to shreds. It's Nero who would take Christians and line the streets that lead into Rome and light them on fire as human torches, as a lead-in, as an entryway into the city. Peter's saying, honor the emperor. What a backward thing to say. But there's a respect there that Peter says, God put him in authority and God will deal with him. What a weird thing to, to think about. And for me, as I was reading this and going back over some stuff with Nero, I think we can honor and pray for our leadership. I think we can honor and pray for our governor, our president. And no matter who the next president is, I think we should be able to look at him and trust God enough to say, I will honor and pray for them. Let's look at this passage one more time. And I'd like us, if you have your Bibles open, to repeat these four things. It says, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Can we read that together if you have your Bible out? Verse 17, ready? Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Let's read on. Verse 18. It says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. And no deceit is found in his mouth. Now I want to start with the last part of this verse and work backwards. Because this is a touchy subject in our country and within our country's history. Paul is talking about slavery. And I want to start by saying this. In no way is Paul signing off on slavery. In no way is he saying that it is okay for one person to own another person, to belittle a person, especially within the atrocities that we saw in slavery in our country, country in the 17 and 1800s. 
In no way, even in a free country, is it okay in your mind to put someone in a slave role or a less than human role in our culture today. Paul, uh, Peter, is not signing off on that. What Peter is doing is speaking into the environment that he was living in. So with 60 million slaves, most of whom were gathered through Roman conquest, these slaves were taken as prisoner of war. Now, they were slaves in in term, but they would have jobs like doctors and teachers and musicians and actors and actresses and secretaries and stewards. Some were even more educated than their masters. Some of the masters would send their slaves off for training to come back to be better equipped. Uh, Rome believed that all work should be done by those we've taken captive. Rome's philosophy was if we are the masters of the world, they were the empire of the world at that time, if we are the masters of the world, let the slaves do everything for the masters. The Romans believed we don't have to do anything. We don't cook, we don't clean, we don't train, train, we don't change dirty diapers, we don't go anywhere on our own, we don't do anything. We lay around all day, we surf the internet, we go through satellite TV and we let everyone else take care of life. That was the Roman culture. That was the Roman way of understanding. But once again, Rome did this because Romans were the only ones who counted. No one else was even considered a human. If you think back to the Apostle Paul when he's arrested and the, and the Roman guards are about to beat him and he says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. That scared the mess out of the guards. Because a Roman citizen was the highest on the food chain. These Romans believed this, but uh, and Aristotle wrote, he said, There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox or even toward a slave. For a master and a slave should have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just a tool that's inanimate. Just as a tool that is inanimate. Their idea was it was purely for use. But then throw into this mix this new move that's called Christianity. These followers of Jesus who are known as the way. And all of a sudden the church becomes a place where these barriers get broken down. Someone who may come in who their entire life has been told, you're nothing but a thing. You're nothing but a tool. You are here to serve the master that is Rome. They're now told there's a new master and he died for you. How backward is that? What kind of a rule change is that in the church, within the church, this entire structure is turned upside down. One of the earliest bishops of the church in Rome was named Callistus and he was a slave. Perpetua, and uh, the aristocrat, and Felicitas was a female slave, and they both were put to death. They both died a martyr's death, hand in hand. Slave and master. Aristocrat, uh, aristocrat and young servant slave girl. The church turned this entire thing on its head. It was very possible for a master to walk into a church and become part of that church, and his slave was the presiding president or the deacon the elder over that church. Everything that was understood was now 
turned upside down. It was a revolutionary uh, situation. And the impact was felt, not just within the church building, but then in the workplace and the environment where they headed out. The first thing we see is Christianity introduced a new relationship between master and man. There's a book in the Bible called Philemon. And in it, there's a slave. His name is Philemon. And he's a runaway. He comes to Christ. He serves Paul. Paul writes, him a, writes a letter to his, to his owner, to his master, and sends Philemon back with this letter. And the letter isn't just, hey, take Philemon back, but it's take him back as a brother. Completely upside down and backwards to what Roman culture would have been. The second thing that really changed was the attitude toward work. Peter's telling them, don't work for the master. You don't go to work for the man. You go to work for Jesus. And no matter what you do or how you do it, you do it with a heart and an attitude and a mind and a work ethic that says, I'm doing my best for Christ. I don't care what my boss's attitude is today. I don't care if I fully agree or don't agree with the process they're putting into place and how we're going to make the widgets. I'm going to make the widgets as best I can for Jesus. I don't like the way this teacher teaches. I don't understand what my professor is trying to teach. But I'm not going to close the book and just spite them. I'm going to study and be all I can and do all I can for the cause and the glory of Christ. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's a new way of looking at the people who work for and with you. There's a new way of looking at the work that you do. And let's say you go to the job. Let's say you go to the school, or maybe even you go to the neighborhood or the house. You go to the country club. You go to the place where you may be considered an outcast. Peter says, you may go to that place and you are abused unjustly. Listen, if you stole something and you're punished, don't blame the person that's punishing you. If you cheated and you got caught, don't blame the teacher. That's on you. But when you're being treated unjustly, Peter says, you know what? You're going through what Jesus went through. You're following the example, really, of what Jesus says to live out your faith, to live out and stand as a Christian, to do good no matter what's being done to you. Verse 21, it says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What were his steps? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats and said he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds... We are healed. The word Peter uses here for the, exam, for the word example is a vivid illustration. It's the way the Romans used to teach their children to write. There would be a cutout of each letter. For some of you, you may remember this from school. And what they did is they give you a pencil, 
If you were in second grade, they gave you one of those fat pencils. Anybody remember the fat pencils you had in elementary school, the ones you have to rest on your shoulder because it's huge? And what they would do is they would give you this outline and you trace the letter. You trace the letter and you trace every letter of the alphabet. And that's how you learn to write. That was the example. If you were learning something in the arts or you were learning how to draw, they would give you a template. And you would begin to trace that template on how to draw a face or trace the template on how to draw a building. And it was the example that was set for you on how to do something. That's the exact word Peter uses here of Jesus for us. Jesus is the template. He becomes the thing that we trace to get it exactly right. When you show up at work tomorrow, or when you're dealing with someone who may call you out or single you out, and it may be for something that either is nothing of your own doing, or maybe it's something they just don't like about you. How did Jesus respond? What's the template? That's what Peter says is the guideline for which we're supposed to follow. Jesus gave us the pattern to follow. If we have to suffer insult and injustice and injury, look at what he went through. It may be that at the back of Peter's mind, there was a glimpse of a tremendous truth, that suffering, the suffering of Jesus was for the sake of man's sin. He suffered in order to bring men back to God. And it may be that when the Christian suffers insult and injury, with uncomplaining steadfastness and unfailing love, he shows a life to other people that can be an example, a template that points people to God. One of the most uh, miraculous lives that I've read the biography of is George Washington Carver. If you ever get the chance to check out George Washington Carver's life, everything that could have been stacked against him was, from his physical health to his family to his education early on, to the process, if you ever read about how much he had to be on the run with physical and health issues, and he wasn't strong, and he wasn't able to work, and this was in the era of slavery. And yet through it all, they said he never lost his sense of humor. He never lost his smile. He never ended his prayer life. He was a devout man of prayer. And he becomes one of the great scientists of his era. His life pointed people to the cross. His example pointed people to the cross, no matter what ridicule they threw at him, no matter what physical hardship they threw at him. You see, here's something I've learned. I actually heard a pastor say it this week, and it just drilled home. You want to learn how to be a disciple? You want to see someone who's figured it out? You see it, and you say, wow, they live it out. My guess is they didn't learn it from a book. They're not a disciple because of a plaque they have on their wall or a study they've done. They've learned to be a disciple through trial. They've learned to be a disciple through stress. They've learned to be a disciple through persecution. Because everything you may have packed in your head gets poured down deep into the roots when winter comes. When the trials come, when the, when the surge comes up against you. Everything that makes you want to quit where you say, I'm not going to. Everything that makes you say, let me take my testimony and put it on the shelf for just a minute because I'm about to tell you what I really think. I'm about to deal with you the way I really want to deal with you. The true disciple, the mature disciple is the one who doesn't shelf the testimony 
And even in the middle of it, and the struggle and everything they go through, keeps their testimony intact. And what does it do? It points people to Christ. Verse 21, Paul wraps up the passage. He says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul, the shepherd, the one who cares for you. We talked about that when we talked about the 23rd Psalm this summer. And the overseer, the protector, the guider, the one who who sets the path for our soul. That's the end game. That's the life, Peter says, that God has called us to. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we close the message this morning, I'd like to just pray for each one of us because life is full of what feels like rule changes where people come in and may stomp on your faith, your walk, your life. Maybe they don't even touch the Jesus side of your life, but you want to go back and react in a natural way. In politics, on a job, in family, in a neighborhood. But let's pray that we live out the faith, the example, by the rules that God set, where the ultimate example is love. Jesus, I thank you for your book. I thank you for this letter that Peter wrote to these people who are outcasts. They're living all throughout the Roman Empire. They've had to run because their lives were under pressure. Their lives were at stake. And yet you call us to live in a way where love is still the first rule. It's still the way we're called to play the game. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we live out that example of love no matter what trial we may go through. In the week to come, the months to come, the years to come, may we reflect your glory. In Christ's name we pray.